0: Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the first episode of Film Fanic, a series of discussions and opinions on film. Duh. <laughs> and yes, I chose to call it Film Fanic, a play on the movie title Titanic, which was the first movie I remember falling in love with. I thought about calling it In the Mood for Film from the movie In the Mood for Love, but Titanic is more special to me. So yeah, if you're a fan of film or a film fanatic, Hopefully you can enjoy Filmfanik. So I don't know what I'm going to do with this podcast. I should probably go into this with a plan, but I figured since I don't have intentions of making it blow up, I'll just go ahead and kick things off. This may be a very limited series, just a few episodes with some friends. I might release episodes on a schedule or I might put something out sporadically. I don't know. What I do know is I love film. I enjoy talking about it, so why the heck not? I'd like to share my thoughts and inspirations, converse with fellow filmmaking friends about this creative process, learn from those with more experience than me, and share their stories with my listeners. In this introductory episode, I want to give you some background on my infatuation with movies, how and when that was realized. Then I'd like to go over my top 20 films. I started with a top 5 list. And then I started listing honorable mentions, and then (laughs) I was excited to mention so many films I decided to make it a top 20. So whatever I want to say about these films, I'll try to keep it brief for now. I figured if I want to talk at length about any of them, I can make an episode around it. But I might go into details about the first five, and then just list the remaining 15. The last thing I'll discuss in this episode is my list of influential directors. When all is said and done, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know what you think of the episode. You can find me on Instagram at Chris J Pinto or message me through my website at ChristianPintoVisuals.com where you can also check out this podcast and some of my work. All right, let's do the damn thing. So picture this, New York, 1995, a Golden Girl reference for you. My mom is taking me to the cinema for the first time. I am two years old. The movie is A Little Princess by Alfonso Cuaron. My mom sits me on her lap and two hour passes, if you include the previews. The film ends, the lights come up, and my mom looks at me to ask how I liked the movie. The man behind her taps her on the shoulder to say, I didn't know you had a kid with you this whole time. My mom tells me this story to describe how transfixed I was by the movie. It was the movie, and it and and was more. I, at two, I'm sure I didn't understand much of what was going on with the story, but to experience the colors and larger-than-life characters interacting on this mammoth screen in front of me, you know, I mean, this is not the television I was used to. I was hooked and the silver screen has yet to release me. The movie theater experience has since then remained sacred to me. I'll spend morning and afternoon at the cinema watching two, three films. I'll see the same movie multiple times. Transformers Dark of the Moon holds the record with seven trips to the theater. In second place is 2014's Godzilla with six trips. You'll notice those two productions are CGI spectacles with giant robots and monsters fighting. However, I'll do the same for a quiet drama like Call Me By Your Name, which I saw four times in theaters. And I already owned the film on Blu-ray by the time I went to that fourth screening. I'll watch a movie anywhere because a good movie is a good movie. But if I could help it, I'd prefer to watch it at the cinema for the first time and second time and third. <laughs> so you get it. Um. It isn't just the cinema, though, that keeps me in love with film. It's, of course, the medium itself. Film is my favorite form of art because it incorporates nearly all forms of art, presenting them in this wonderfully stimulating package. You have writing, photography, uh, performance, music, design, fashion, drawing, if you're doing animation or storyboarding. There seems to be no end. To how one can make a movie. How one can use filmmaking to tell a story. So much power for one medium of art and why not? It's, it's a collaboration of many already powerful mediums. I love acting out films in my room. Uh, I, I would start from the studio logo showing up on the screen to the end credits. I'd even act out the end credits. I, If someone were to walk in on me doing all these hand gestures that represent words showing up on the screen or moving my head oddly because my eyes are the camera, they'd they think I'm insane. But in my head, I'm an audience member sitting in a theater watching this movie. So as I mentioned before, the first film love of my life other than the actual movie theater was Titanic, which was released in 1997 and directed by James Cameron, a movie I made my mom take me to see in theaters at least three times, and as a four or five-year-old, I was eager to sit through a three-plus-hour film to watch this massive ship sink to the bottom of the Atlantic. As an adult, I now appreciate the entire film, including the development of the Jack and Rose love story. But as a child, I'm sure it was just that last half of the movie that I really wanted to see. So yeah, Titanic swept me off my feet in the beginning. I was so fascinated with these beautiful sets they build just to destroy them and how they caught that on camera. I I used to have this 3D Titanic puzzle that my mom was annoyed with because she would help me build it and then i would just destroy it you know split it into two like the, the ship does in the film but yeah it's and and the music too burrowed its way into my head and stayed even when i wasn't watching the film i was thrilled by the shot choices how they photographed this gorgeous ship At the time, I wasn't thinking of terms like cinematography and whatnot, but I was noticing it. And so I'm not sure, I don't remember which movie it was, but around this time, I had walked out of a movie, looked up at my mother, and told her I wanted to make movies when I got older. Now, my mother recently told me that she expected me to want to make action disaster movies because I would run around the house acting out explosions and destruction Around this time of Titanic, you know, like the mid to late 90s, you also had The Mummy with Brendan Fraser, or Disney's animated film Dinosaurs, uh, 1998's American Godzilla, uh, Armageddon by Michael Bay. Then around six or seven years old, my family and I moved into a house that at the time I was sure was haunted, and I was intrigued by that. And maybe it was connecting that to movies like The Others and The Sixth Sense that I developed this passion for horror because, and mainly supernatural horror, but because for the, for the next decade plus, I mostly wanted to make horror films. Throughout those years, there were times where I desired to make other kinds of films Uh, I was reading a lot of fantasy YA novels and watching anime films like those from Hayao Miyazaki. So I wanted to make fantasy films. I loved Pan's Labyrinth um, by Guillermo del Toro for its fusion of horror and fantasy. Uh, There was my Transformers phase because of Michael Bay's Transformers series. I bought the toys so I can make stop motion films. Uh, Still, horror films were my dream. Then, toward the end of my college years, I was becoming more interested in psychology, and thus horror films that were more psychological, a little more The Babadook, and a little less insidious. I started becoming interested in the protagonists dealing with their inner demons and less interested in the external monsters. Although, a movie that can create an external manifestation of those inner demons like The Babadook does will always be intriguing to me so i was really getting into dark dramas and character studies eventually i landed on character driven dramas it doesn't have to have a high concept plot or be of a specific genre it just needs a character that i want to unpack and follow and learn about i watched a three hour and about 20 minute film in which the whole time you watch a woman doing her daily chores because I was invested in this woman. I might actually talk more about this film in another episode, because I do find the movie very interesting. It's called Jean Dimon. I don't know if I said that correctly, (laughs) but it's a French film, and that is the name of the character. The entire title actually includes her dress, because the 99% of the film takes place in her apartment, but I don't know enough French to attempt the rest of the title. So if you type in Jean Dumont, you should be able to find it. It's in the criteria collection in case you have a subscription for that. So there's sort of an outline of the evolution of my filmic love. Um, You know, my passion for film, how that sort of evolved. I was very quick it got through a lot of years Um, so over the next couple episodes maybe you learn more about it and I'll speak more to also my work in film you know going to college and and afterwards and maybe a little before that Um, but yeah so now I'd like to get into my top 20 as I mentioned before I'll go into a few details for the first five For the rest, I'll probably just name them with hopes of discussing some of them, if not all of them, further in future episodes. Uh, This list is in no particular order, although if I did have to order them, the first five would be at the top. However, those are also not in any order. I'm crazy about all of them equally. And I'd like to apologize now if I mispronounce any names for movies and directors. So, all right, here we go. First on the list, Suspiria but the 2018 remake by Luca Guadagnino the original was released in 1977 and directed by Dario Argento Uh, when I think about what a remake should do for me Guadagnino's Suspiria is a standard this movie doesn't just copy the original story beat by beat with the intention of uh, modernizing it for a new audience I mean it still takes place in 1977 But it really fleshes out the story. You get perspectives that are new, giving development to some of the other characters. And I enjoy it when a film uses some sort of uh, backdrop to tie in the themes of the main story, something happening in the uh, environment of the film. But it isn't the focal point, you know, it's just there. And in, ca- in this case, in the case of Suspiria 2018, it was the political upheaval of the, um, I think they called it the German autumn. So I'd like to name and give credit to the writer of the screenplay, David Kajanik. And the final thing I'll talk about is the change in plot twist. So spoiler alert for the original 1977 film, the protagonist who joined the dance academy in germany learns later in the movie that the academy is run by a covenant of witches in 2018 that's at the forefront of the story no mystery there but there's a new twist that i will not spoil and i found it delicious <laughs> dakota johnson plays her role magnificently and uh yeah it, the 1977 suspiria was an inspiration for guadagnino and his shows uh, even though his telling is tonally and visually different, there is so much love put into this movie that I felt the respect he had for its predecessor. So that was first on my list. The second movie I have on my list was also directed by Luca Guadagnino, uh, 2017's Call Me By Your Name. This is a film adaptation of the novel of the same name by Andre Simon. This is one where I really like both novel and film the same. Maybe it's a cliche for a gay man to love, Call Me By Your Name. However, it's it's the whole atmosphere of the film. You have people lounging around in northern Italy during the summertime. They're swimming in lakes, going to outside dances, reading under the sun. Uh, The present yet quiet soundscape. And editing and Luca Guadagnino's style, which I'll talk more about later. But I'll just say he he lets time breathe in this film. It all creates this very relaxed ambiance, and and I love it. It's it's what I strive for in my life. But talking about the the gay love aspect of the story one thing that really caught my attention was the lack of an overbearing anti-gay antagonist uh, which is usually played by you know their community or the, the the parental the parental figures in their lives this time however they're just exploring their sexuality and even though there was a little bit of hesitancy it had more to do with not knowing if the other person was into you and less with oh shoot do i have this curiosity that I shouldn't be having the side characters in the story seem to be supportive of their love even if they weren't obvious about it and that they didn't outright say it but they didn't try to hold the main characters back from being together Um, now this next movie that I'm going to name is not a Luca Guadagnino movie it is The Witch by Robert Eggers which came out in 2015 this horror film shook me to my core. And I remember the first time watching it in theaters. That last scene had me tense, holding onto the armrest. And as soon as the screen cut to black, my phone vibrated in my pocket. And I thought, damn, even my phone respected this movie enough to wait till the end. Robert Eggers wrote the film as well and did a great job with constructing this little space for this family to just unravel. There is an actual witch in this movie, hiding right out there in the woods, but the movie doesn't focus on the witch. It it focuses on what the notion of a witch does to this family, how it causes the family to mistrust each other. So while there is this actual monster in the movie, what should have been the antagonist of the film, or what could have been, I should say is actually not the antagonist for a main character the antagonist is probably the father or the mother you know she she's trying to deal with being stuck in this very religious family and wanting freedom but those at least in the 1600s in which this movie takes place do not feel compatible so these themes that come up in the film are so intriguing to me, and I appreciated the way that they were explored instead of it just being a movie about this family being harassed or haunted by a witch. Then you have this eerily strong score to the film. I had to buy that soundtrack right away. I would listen to it while I lay in bed, waiting for sleep, while I was out and about walking around in sun or rain. Of course, overcast days helped set the mood, but I wasn't picky. And uh, I would listen to the soundtrack and come up with my own scenes to go with the music. I'd say that a good chunk of the stories that I've come up with over the years have been inspired by a song or a piece of music. I'd hear something I like and I'd create this scene to it or a trailer. And then from there, I would try to expand on that scene and build a whole story. So The Witch was very influential for me and was a part of this revitalization in my passion for horror that started with The Babadook the year before and while I haven't gone back to wanting to direct only horror when The Witch came out I was coming up with many new ideas for horror films. All right so number four is Titanic by James Cameron which came out in 1997. I've already talked a little bit about Titanic so I'm not going to really go into details here But I will mention that when the movie was released for IMAX 3D in 2012, I was bawling my eyes out and at the end of the film, just really letting it go. So yeah, Titanic will always have a special place in my heart, even as my heart goes on. Number five is a little bit of a cheat. I wasn't sure which one to put here because they both excited me so much, uh, So since they are part of the same franchise, one is the direct sequel to the other, I decided to make number five a package. So we have Legendary Studios' Godzilla, which came out in 2014, Godzilla's 60th anniversary, and was directed by Gareth Edwards. And then the 2019 sequel, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, directed by Michael Doherty. From the epicness and the fantastic CGI, to the epicness and the sound design, to the epicness and the cinematography for a monster movie, I might add. It all thrilled me to no end. In the first movie, the reveal of the titular titan, Godzilla, was built up with beautiful suspense. And when Godzilla arrived on the screen in all his glory, it, it just took my breath away. And then in the second film, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, we get reacquainted with classic Godzilla kaijus like Rodan, Mothra, and the infamous Ghidorah. Uh, they have such a powerful presence on screen. the The score in King of the Monsters is out of this world amazing, and I'm excited to do an episode on film score so I can gush about this soundtrack. Actually, while I stand by that statement that it's out of this world, I also think it's very much of this world in such a great way in how it incorporates the chanting of monks uh, and these drums that sound ancient and tribal and uh, earthy, if that makes sense. In both films, these titans are treated with such reverence, they are given such majesty, that you really get this sense of primeval gods of earth. Even though one of them, spoiler alert, is not of Earth. The Godzilla saga franchise, whatever you want to call it, starting from the great 1954 Japanese creation to now, 65 years and 30 plus movies later, it, it deserves its own episode. So hopefully I get around to that someday. And and yes, I have seen Godzilla vs. Kong, which came out this year in, in 2021 and was directed by Adam Wingard. Um Now, this isn't uh, my favorite of the recent Godzilla films because it's a little too cheesy for my taste. It it felt very Uh, Marvel-esque. And I enjoy Marvel films, but I know to expect that sort of colorful lightheartedness to the film. In Godzilla movies, I'm partial to the darker, more somber tones. It feels a little more grounded and realistic Well, as realistic as a kaiju movie like that can get. Uh, But in in King of the Monsters, they do introduce a little more comic relief and quirky characters and less realistic concepts than its predecessor. But for me, it was Godzilla vs. Kong where it started to become amped up. Uh, But the movie for sure, for sure delivers on the monster brawling, making good on that promise of its title. And... Wow, what a spectacle to watch, especially on the big screen. So I still very much so had fun. But anyway, this is this episode isn't a film review. So now I'm going to move on. And we're and those were my top five. So now I'm going to list the remaining 15. The honorable mentions list that was getting too long. Now, keep in mind, this isn't a list of the best films I think you should watch to study cinema. These are films that I really, really liked and appreciate and have in some way, whether big or small, inspired me. Uh, So I'm going to do the title, year, and director. Okay, so Transformers, Darker the Moon, 2011, Michael Bay. Don't judge me, just accept it. (laughs) The Others... 2001, Alejandro Amenarbar. The Exorcist, 1973, William Friedkin. I would like to say quickly that I used to be, probably still am, very envious of this film because when I wanted to only make horror films, I thought about how uh, there would probably never be another horror film that has an effect on and power over the public the way this movie did. You know, the the long lines around the block. The passing out and vomiting in theaters. The call for ambulances. People running to church. Incredible. Okay, next. Mother, 2009, Bang Joon-ho. This is a Korean film, not the American film by Darren Ar- Aronofsky. Although I liked that movie too. But yeah, this is the Korean film Mother. Uh, next is also by Bang jun ho uh, Memories of Murder, 2003. Princess Mononoke, 1997, Hayao Miyazaki, Bolver, 2006, Pedro Amadova, The Babadook, 2014, Jennifer Kent, The Salesman, 2016, Asghar Fahardi, I Am Love, 2009, Luca Guaranino, The Innocents, 1961, Jack Clayton, Dunkirk, 2017, Christopher Nolan, Roma, 2018, Alfonso Cuarón, Sicario, 2015, Denis Villeneuve; and The Wailing, 2016, Hong Jin. So there's my list of top 20 films. I have even more written down in my book, to be honest, but maybe I'll save those for a later episode i like to now get into my list of influential directors. Firstly, I have Luca Guadagnino. You may have already seen that coming. He is my favorite director at this time. I feel like his approach to storytelling is very aligned to how I would like to approach storytelling. And so I'm very influenced by his films and inspired by them and eager to practice that or imitate that while, you know, making it my own. He's a very sensorial director. It's like he wants to get at all of your senses, and and he really gets the landscape and the environment around the characters visually, but also sonically. I wonder if he deliberately asks the sound designer to raise the level in the background or ambient noises because I always notice it more with his films. It envelops me more, and I feel more a part of that experience. He recently directed a series on HBO called We Are Who We Are, and I noticed it very much so in that production as well. But he also touches on taste and smell and touch when you're watching his movies. I think the film that really shows off this style the most is 2009's I Am Love. So if someone were to ask me to recommend a movie as an introduction to a director I really admire, I would point to that movie. The next three directors that I'm going to mention, I'm mentioning together because they were all introduced to me by a director that I've worked with and who is a friend of mine still, named Gigi Hozima. I met her when I worked as a cinematographer on her first feature, He Belongs to Us, which is now streaming on Amazon. (laughs) And uh, she, along with the co-producer, would... ...give me movies to watch so I can get a sense of the tone and visual style she wanted for this film. But they would also just share uh, some movies and directors just because they love film and They love talking about it with other people. So they were happy to share. Uh, And Gigi is also the reason why I started watching more foreign films. I was already watching Japanese anime and some Korean films. But I started widening my horizon when she would give me this homework... Anyway, those directors would be Ingmar Bergman, Andrei Tarkovsky, and Pedro Amadova. Now, I'm not sure if Pedro Amadova was supposed to be homework for preparation for her film. I think maybe she just wanted to show me, again, another director that she really liked. But watching his films really started to change the style of movies or the genre of movies that I wanted to make. I was already moving away from horror and going more into dark dramas. Then I saw his films and was just captivated by his blend in drama and and comedy, so now I've come up with these stories that are lighter in tone, you know, kind of like more dramedies. He also has a knack for weaving thriller elements into his stories. He does this well and, and has mentioned in an interview that he was inspired by Alfred Hitchcock films, and it shows but but not just the genre but in the use of colors too cuz he's a very um colorful director the the those really he grabs your attention he stimulates your your eyes with with the colors in his film and uh i think he was discussing alfred hitchcock's vertical when he when he said that um now with Igmar bergman he's on the list ...because of the way he captures faces on camera. I feel like Bergman breaks the show-don't-tell rule all of the time. Instead of showing something, he'll have a character regale us with a long story. And so we get blessed with these long close-ups of of these characters. And I'm never bored. Credit also has to go to the actors who really use their facial expressions... ...to convey and um, heighten the emotions that are supposed to come through the stories they're telling... Then you have the way Bergman positions them. So when there are two or more characters on screen, they're not always looking at each other in a way that feels familiar during a normal conversation scene or normal in real life. So what you get is this unique and intriguing composition. And then with Andrei Tarkovsky, it's the way he captures the environment. He's always setting his stories in places with, that are rich in texture. It's as if I can touch the screen and feel the cement or the dilapidated walls or the grass, the ground the water. the way i see the way I see it is while Bergman is very much about the person Tarkovsky is very much about the environment, the surroundings. Don't get me wrong, he pays beautiful attention to the people in in his films as well, but in these films. The place really is an important character in the story, and he and he plays poetically with time in his universe. Time doesn't really exist the way it does in our reality. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably strange that I don't have any films from Bergman and Tarkovsky on my top twenty list. Um, however, I, I I would like to dissect their filmography sometime. So before all these directors, actually. Okay, so two more I'd like to talk about. Bang Joon-ho and Denis Villeneuve. Bang Joon-ho is a South Korean director and is probably more known for now for his 2019 film Parasite, which won an Oscar for Best Picture, not just Best Foreign or International Film. Um, and it was the first foreign language film to do so. Bong Joon-ho has a great sense of visual composition. Uh, he's another director that I really like for where he places his characters in a scene, how he moves them and the camera so it's not so much cutting to coverage here and coverage there, but the shots don't feel lifeless. But even when the camera and the characters aren't moving much, he constructs the shot in a way to emphasize the themes or the conflict in his film. So he's very particular and um, very motivated. His his shots are very motivated. He also nicely blends comedic relief with his drama. It's, it seems like something a lot of South Korean filmmakers do well. I noticed it in horror films like Train to Busan by Yoon Sang-ho and uh, The Wailing. And then... Uh Denis Villeneuve, a great director of intense stories. I mean he 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 masterfully builds tension and suspense in films like Sicario 2013's Prisoners and Enemy. There's also Blade Runner 2049. And what he utilizes in these films a lot is a lot of contrast between light and darkness putting subjects in shadows and in silhouettes. I noticed in my photography that that's something I gravitate towards. And so while the stories I've been creating lately may not visually lend themselves to that tone, although I do have a plethora of ideas that would, um, it is my favorite look. And so we should also credit the cinematographers who bring to life that look that Villeneuve likes, uh, cinematographers like Roger Deakins and... Nicholas Bullduke, excuse me if I horribly mispronounce these names. Um, So that's my list of influential directors. Uh, One thing that kind of ties them all together is just the way that they let Their story breathes and they let their shots breathe and they're not rushing to cut to the next thing or the next scene, the next shot or the next beat. So, uh, you know, I I, I like slow paced films and I feel that these directors are not afraid to create slow paced movies, even when they're making uh, high concept action films like Blade Runner 2049. (laughs) So, yeah, they take their time. To develop the story and the characters. And I love it. And of course there are always more directors and movies and cinematographers. And composers and actors that we could talk for hours about. So if I turn this into a longer series maybe I can do just that with others. For now I'm going to wrap up this introductory episode. I'd love to hear or read about your lists. You can send them to me on YouTube. Instagram, my website. So once again, my Instagram is Chris J Pinto and the website is ChristianPintoVisuals.com. And my YouTube channel is ChristianPintoVisuals. Um, so yeah, let's connect and talk film. The next two episodes for this podcast have already been recorded and will probably be released with episode one. In both, I talk with a fellow filmmaker and good friend about their passion for film. And we choose a movie to discuss a little about. I was supposed to release this podcast a lot earlier, like February. So when we talk about the Pixar film Soul, it was a little more brand new. But it's all good. Movies don't have to die a month after their release. And anyway, in the next episode, I talk about Dr. Sleep, which is even older. So yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, don't forget to watch a movie.